Welcome to Wisdom and the Word Podcast, the show that not only answers your questions from God's Word, but equips believers with the foundational truths for their faith. We're excited that you've taken time to join us and hope that today's content is valuable to you. In today's episode, Pastor Wiley answers a listener's question from the Bible. Welcome to Wisdom and the Word. We're glad that you're joining us on this Thursday edition. Today is Thoughtful Thursday, and we'll be answering some of our listeners' questions. We have two in particular that we're going to jump in and answer today. I'm going to give you the first one here right as we get started. The first one says this, please explain the sign of contradiction for those who don't know. I heard a sermon on this once, and you and I can chat on this view uh, if you'd like. Well, you know, uh, great question. Sign of contradiction. I'll be honest. I got the question and um, uh, somebody had had put in there. Um, uh, it was worded a little bit different. The something of contradiction. I can't remember what it was. And and uh, I, I, I searched it because I had never heard of it. Um, and so I was like, well, why have I never heard of this? And so I began searching around and couldn't find anything on that. And then I found there was, so they had transposed and used one word for another word. And I found that it was called the sign of contradiction. And the reason why I hadn't heard about it is because it's Catholic dogma and theology. <laughs> I don't study a lot of Catholic dogma and theology. And so I'm going to attempt to answer the question based on what I understand uh, this to be the sign of contradiction. Let me explain to you a little bit what the sign of contradiction is, because I do think this is worth our time and worth a discussion. Um, a sign of contradiction in Catholic theology is someone who, upon manifesting holiness, is subject to extreme opposition. That is, when you show that you're holy, when you show that you're godly, there's going to be extreme opposition to that. Now, the term is, is from the biblical phrase uh, that's found in Luke chapter 2 and verse number 34. Look, Luke 2, 34. Uh, the Bible says here, And Simeon blessed them and said unto Mary his mother, Behold, this child is set for the fall and rising again of many in Israel, and for a sign which shall be spoken against. Okay, then in Acts chapter 28 and verse number 22, uh, we find another reference here, Acts chapter 28 and verse number 22. Uh, Luke says it's a sign which shall be spoken against. Um, in Acts 28, 22, the Bible says, but we desire to hear of thee what thou thinkest, for as concerning this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. And it's speaking of uh, people that know God, people that walk with Christ, that they're spoken against. And so, uh, again, contradiction comes from the Latin word contra, against, and desere, which is to speak, or to literally contradiction, to speak against. So, in Luke 2.34, it refers to Jesus Christ. In Acts 28.22, it refers to Christians. And in both of these phrases, the Bible says that, that Christ would be a sign which would be spoken against, and that this group of people in Acts 28.22 are a group of people that are spoken against. Now, according to Catholic tradition, a sign of contradiction points to the presence of Christ or the presence of the divine due to the union of that person or reality with God. That is, when someone comes in unity with God, there is the presence of God, the presence of godliness, and as a result, uh, it is made evident that they are uh, in contradiction to certain things. Now, um, 
unfortunately, in his book, Sign of Contradiction, uh, John Paul II says that the sign of contradiction might be a distinctive definition of Christ and of his church. And so, again, let me just kind of talk a little bit about this. We reject, let me be very clear at the outset here, um, I, I'm having this conversation because the listeners uh, asked the question, and I think it is worth our time. However, we reject Catholic doctrine and dogma because we, again, we have an under, a, a disagreement on some major aspects of theology, including the matter of salvation, what it means to be saved, whether you can know that you're saved, the um, the method by which uh, people are saved and they're not granted salvation or grace through the church. We we disagree in the in the pedo baptism. Uh, we disagree in the sacramental system. We disagree with them on the Eucharist of Christ. We disagree with them on the consubstantiation uh, concept. I could I listen. I could literally go on and on and on about the areas of disagreement on this. And certainly it does not um, excite me that this concept was pointed out uh, by John Paul II. However, <laughs> however, I think when you look at these verses, while we don't need a a, a a biblical, we don't need a, a moniker or a label for everything. I think sometimes we label everything and we give it uh, theological terms and we confuse people. But um, understand this. We definitely can see at face value this concept of a sign of contradiction rooted in the Bible. Now, as many other superstitious ideas, we would not stray as far as allowing this concept to morph into a mystical or esoteric experience. It is true that our union with Christ brings us into contradiction with the world. We have to be careful with how far we let this go. Um, if we were to talk about this, it could end up being some sort of mystical, it could end up being some sort of uh, experience-driven kind of thing where, oh, that was a sign of contradiction. And this can happen. Uh, this can happen with people, people who are searching for signs and looking for things. God sent me an omen. God sent me a sign. These kinds of things. We believe that we are guided by primarily the word of God. That is our primary means of guidance. Not that God can't choose other means of speaking to us, but we believe that God has spoken through his son and recorded it for us in the word of God. So, if we are to acknowledge the fact that this sign of contradiction exists, we definitely have to put a limit on it and play, draw our lines very clearly so that it does not become something that we are just saying, well, that was a sign of contradiction. That was a sign of contradiction. Um, our union with Christ, our union with Christ is, is going to set us in contradiction to the world. That is not debatable. Uh, that is, that is a, a thoroughly biblical doctrine. Now, Becoming a sign of contradiction is not the same as becoming contrarian. That is, evangelization is not a war with the world. We aren't going to war with them. Um, as the Catholics try to convert people uh, by war, that is not the method that we see prescribed in the Bible. That is not our method of evangelism. Nor does becoming a sign of contradiction mean withdrawing from the world. It doesn't mean that we can't interact with them, that we can't have any sort of interaction at all with them. That's not biblical either. Uh, when you look at the scriptures, we are not to, we are supposed to engage the world with salt and light. Live separate 
in the sense of being dedicated to God's purposes alone, but at the same time, engaging with the world in, in evangelism. Becoming a sign of contradiction means witnessing to, to other people, but also witnessing to something more delightful, more profound, and more meaningful than what our world has to offer. The reason why we are in contradiction is because we say this world is not home. This is not what God intended. What God intended is yet to come, and we are looking for it, and we are waiting for it, and we are living for that world and not for this one. And so it puts us in contradiction with the world. Now, the concept of, you know, a sign of contradiction um, or things are our lives being in contradiction to the world. I'm not sure that I've even used the phrase sign of contradiction, but certainly when you look at the scriptures, it's very clear. The concept of us being in contradiction to the things of this world is seen in the divisive nature of Jesus' ministry. It's seen in his promises. It's seen in the cross. It's seen in the responsibility of the church to the world. It's seen in the new nature, the way that all the New Testament writers set our worldview at odds with the commonly subscribed system. Everything you see in the scripture says that once we trust Christ, God places us at odds with the world. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. All of these concepts, such were some of you, um, you, you, the eyes of your understanding being darkened. You can go through all of these things that basically says we are living from a new life and a new perspective. Uh, Old things have passed away. All things have become new. We're looking at the world through a different lens now that we know Christ as our Savior. So it's important to know that this is it written into the very fabric of the New Testament. In fact, um, as we think about this, it is our union with Christ or perhaps the privilege of communion and indwelling that will be a key component in our opposition to the world. That is, when we became united with Jesus Christ or the fact that we are communing with him in spirit and the spirit of God indwells us, that, that enlightenment, that enablement, that... Um, that regeneration that takes place is going to put us at odds with the world. And as such, we do stand, all Christians, uh, the New Testament church, uh, they stand as signs of contradiction in this world. So in essence, we would have an area of agreement, but again, we would not couch the, the terminology in this way. Let me, let me kind of finish this question off by saying this. Uh, we must caution on carrying this too far. Um, and again, I've tried to caution as we've gone along about adopting this, adopting this kind of language or using this kind of, of, of philosophy because we, again, tie ourselves to a system uh, or a, uh, a religion that we believe is wholly unbiblical. And so we have to be careful. You know, speaking of our union with Christ in some mystical fashion and making it kin to Eastern mysticism is to be rejected. We cannot say, we'll get this sign. I mean, you know, when, you know, somebody uh, has their toast come up and they can see Mary in their toast. Um, and I'm not sure that that's exactly what the Bible refers to as a sign, you know, a picture, a symbol, you know, um, this has happened by the way. I mean, reason why I say this, or, you know, when you're driving down the road over in Orlando, they've got a, a place called Mary Queen of the Universe, which is a um, kind of a Catholic church. And there they've, you know, in the glass, uh, people have seen reflections of Mary. These are not the kinds of signs that we're looking for. 
And if if that's the word sign that's being used and it's used in that way where it's tying us to some sort of Eastern mysticistic type of 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 manifestation of God, that's not what we believe. In fact, labeling some things as particular signs of contradiction and distinguishing them from from the normative Christian life is also discouraged. That is, we say, okay, that's a sign. But but looking at listen, the norm of the Christian life is this. We live in contradiction to the world. Uh, we are a living sign of contradiction. And so, um, and again, I think the re- reason why, why this was uh, originally phrased was, please explain the image of contradiction. And again, I couldn't find anything on that, but I, I knew that as we were talking, it's got to be sign of contradiction. And so there's our thoughts on the sign of contradiction today. Uh Let's move on today as we continue talking under our second question, and it relates to the book of Job. Job is seen as the preeminent book for revealed theology versus natural theology. Most people dismiss Job's three friends as clear errors of natural theology. However, some are split on the last friend who shows up, with some viewing these sayings as doctrine-worthy, while others only count Job's words specifically as worthy of presenting the view of sound doctrine. How about you? So really what they're asking me is, well, how do I feel about the last of the four friends uh, that came to Job? Well, we've got four guys that shows show up in the book of Job. Let me just kind of go through them for those of you who may not be familiar with the book at all. Um, the book is a book of dialogue. In fact, the entire book of Job, uh, save the epilogue and the prologue, are actually all poetry. Job is a book of poetry. The reason why it's written, it's it's in the poetic books is because it's it's all written in prose form. Um, and there are the whole book is a book of dialogue. It is a serious dialogue between Job and his three friends. Now, those three friends show up early on in the book. They 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 commiserate with Job. They they sit with Job for a week without saying any words. But when the conversation begins about why this travesty has happened to him, to them, they speak some foolish things. Now, those three guys. Their names were Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. Um, these men speak, and most scholars believe that they speak in order of their age, that Eliphaz would have been the oldest, Bildad and Zophar, that would have been the way that, that they would have conversed in that time or allowed to have given instruction to Job. You're going to find similarities in the arguments of all three, even though all three are different. Now, it's very clear from reading the book of Job, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar speak wrongly. Uh, not only do they incur the indignation of Job and his other friend, Elihu, which is the fourth guy that shows up, Elihu, but God himself rebukes them, saying to Eliphaz, if you'll look in uh, the book of Job and chapter number 42, uh, Job 42, you'll find um, that he is rebuked uh, in this particular text, uh, that that in, in Job 42, there is a rebuke that takes place. Um, and it, it, Job's no longer in my Bible. <laughs> I'll find it here. Job 42. Okay, flipping over there. And um, flip by it three times. Job 42 and verse number seven, the Bible says, And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee and against thy two friends, for ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right as my servant Job hath. 
And the issue, it seems, in, in chapter 42, verse 7, is they were speaking about God wrongly. Um, not that everything they said, a lot of the things that they said um, would have been normal conclusions to arrive at, some of which even are even rooted in the teaching of the book of Proverbs uh, in the Old Testament. But the main issue, it seems, that, that God had with what they said was what they said was wrong about God. Listen, we can get a lot of things in, in life wrong. We can speak a lot of wrong things. But the one thing that we can't get wrong in life is what we know about God and who he is. And so that seems to be the primary issue. Now, for those that talk about Elihu, let's kind of shift scenes to him because that's who the question is about. Did Elihu, he's not rebuked, did Elihu offer good counsel? I mean, is is are we to look at what he says and to be able to understand that what he says is proper and right since he's not, well, some people will say he's not rebuked. Um, he's not rebuked by Job and he's not rebuked by God. There's no response. Uh, it seems from Job as to what Elihu has to say. Um, yet when you look at it, much of Elihu's speech seems similar to the speeches of the first three. That is, um, Bildad and, and Zophar and Eliphaz, it seems that their speeches were very similar to the things that we would hear coming out of Elihu's mouth. You can find some similarities. Um, for instance, in Job 34, 12, Elihu seems to argue along similar lines as the other three friends that Job suffers justly for things he has done. If you go back to chapter 34 and, and find uh, verse number 12, it seems that the accusation here is that you're suffering for something that you've done. It says, yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. That is, the things that you're getting, you're getting justly from God. Um, Elihu spoke correctly about God. Um, he would say that he would talk about how God brings punishment on people. And that it sometimes that sometimes it makes sense. He brings punishment on the wicked, and that's true about God. And sometimes it doesn't make sense when God brings punishment, uh, when God brings punishment for other purposes. The three friends that uh, that he had, they spoke lies that Job had spoke lies about God. That God only punishes the wicked. That was why God was so angry with the three friends. It seems is that they did not understand. God's workings in this world and God allowing difficult things and trials to come upon people who were good. Uh, some will look at Elihu, and I've read it myself. Some will look at Elihu like he's Elijah. You know, his, his conversation with Job comes just before God's conversation with Job which means he's the forerunner. He's he's coming in like Elijah, and he's the lone voice crying in the wilderness who is to rebuke Job, humanly speaking, before God gets his chance. Um, some will say he lacks a rebuke, and so that means that what he said was good. Others will say, well, he wasn't rebuked, but he wasn't praised either. I mean, there's literally nothing. There's no response from God, no response from Job. We literally have no response at all. It doesn't mean that it was good. It just means that there's none recorded. And then others would say, well, you know, his his uh, introduction was quite unflattering. Uh, that not only is he described, he's described as one who is angry with Job. That seems to be the way that he is, he is spoken of. So that's not quite fratal, uh, flattering. 
All right, so what what is it? Is he Elijah preparing the way of the Lord? Is he speaking correctly? Is he not speaking correctly? Let me let me kind of put some balance on this. All right, let me just give you my view. As in anything related to humans, it's imperative that we avoid characterizing people in an absolute way. So if I were to ask you, uh, David, um, great king, bad king, great dad, bad dad, uh, you know, great Christian, bad Christian, well, how would you characterize that? You say, well, you know, David was a David was a great Christian. He was a man after God's own heart. And those would say, yeah, David messed up. He he made some serious mistakes. He had some sin. Got to take both, don't you? Because as in any character in the Bible, sometimes you have to step in and go, why are we painting this with an absolute brush when God makes it clear that all men have within them the paradox of sin? That, that there are times when we stumble onto good things and there are times when we stumble upon bad things. Um, I think it's important. There is no one who is absolutely right all the time except God. I mean, is it a problem for us to read through Elihu's argument and to go, yeah, that's good. No, that's not good. That's good. That's not good. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem reading through and understanding that the Bible is a book of human beings and that the things that are recorded, there were some, I mean, that's the way I look at some of the things that were said by his three friends. Some of the things they said were good things, undeniably good things. Other things they said were about as far off as you possibly can get. And the reason why they were rebuked is because what they got wrong was God. And you just can't get God wrong. So to a view to view Elihu in an absolute way, I think is a fallacy. He says some things that other men don't say. He gets God's character more right than the others, and he escapes rebuke. However, his counsel is not God's counsel. It's still the counsel of a man of a man. God eventually gets his words in. They're not the words of Elihu. He says what he wants to say. So men are fallible. Just as we falsely painted Job as one who was above sin. We think about Job, we're like, ah, Job was the, you know, this, this perfect man. No, Job had his own faults. Job wasn't a perfect man. He wasn't, he wasn't sinless. The Bible says he was one that eschewed evil. That is, I mean, as far as fallen humans are concerned, Job did a good job of managing sin and managing his household, managing life, but there is no perfect human being. There's no claim of perfection in the Bible for Job. And it seems throughout the dialogue that Job's righteousness turns to a bit of self-righteousness before he speaks to God. If you read Job's conversation with Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and how he defends himself, by the time that you get to chapter 38, where the conversation with God actually begins, what you find is that it seems that God rebukes Job for allowing his, his, his righteousness, which we see in the very beginning, to turn to self-righteousness. Because he's not above sin. And so his rigorous defense of his own character from the onslaught of his friends creates a false narrative that God rebukes Job for when they speak. And ultimately, this is going to bring Job's purification. He's going to be tried. And when he comes forth, he'll come forth as gold. So I don't see there's any reason to look at Elihu in that way, to be able to characterize and be able to say him in an, in an absolute way. He either represents Elijah or he is, you know, just as wicked as his three friends are. He's got some things right and some things wrong, at least 
maybe perhaps he got God more right than they did and did not deserve the rebuke that God gives them in chapter 42 and verse number seven. All right. Well, I hope that made sense today. I hope that was a help to you in being able to kind of think through those things. We've got some questions left. I'm looking at my list. And uh, looks like I have got nine questions uh, that are left here, and I hope that you will send them to us. Um, if you have questions, please feel free to ask us. We will add them to the list, and we'll deal with them as they come in. As you can see, there's a lot of variety here about what we can deal with. So we hope that you will take your time and answer question, ask questions that might be a help to you as well as others. Maybe they're wondering about the same thing. I want to thank you so much. We hope that you'll join us on Tuesday on our Tuesday broadcast. We go into Hebrews seven, and we talk about Jesus, the high priest, after the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Kind of important that we get this guy right. We'll be talking about him on Tuesday. We hope that you'll join us for that. Send us your questions for our next Thoughtful Thursday edition. Once again, thank you for joining us on this edition of Wisdom in the Word. Have a great day and God bless. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Wisdom in the Word podcast. If you've enjoyed today's episode, we invite you to support us by subscribing, rating, and reviewing this show on your favorite podcast app and sharing something you've learned on social media. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope to see you next time on Wisdom in the Word.